0: Well, good morning. Real privilege to be with you. I did visit uh, in the other location. Uh, the first time I've been here and uh, I had some fun getting here, I didn't just go on the, what is it, uh, town circle. I went round in circles, you know, and uh, uh, VG rescued me. I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had a phone, you know. But uh, anyway, we made it. Glad to be here and glad to have the opportunity of uh, opening the Scriptures with you. I want to obviously speak about Genesis 37 and about about Joseph. There's something special about Joseph. Um, Many of the Bible characters that we read about, um, the characters that the Bible has quite a bit to say about, uh, we discover that there were some flaws, and the Bible tells us about those things. Jacob is different. Joseph is different. Nothing negative about Joseph. Doesn't mean he was perfect. He wasn't perfect, but the Bible doesn't record anything negative about joseph he was special his father says so his father thought so doesn't it say about uh, him in verse five um verse um, five verse four that um his brothers saw that their father loved him verse three says israel loved joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age he was about 90 years of age i think when joseph was born and so it says he loved him because he was the son of his old age. I, I, would, isp- I, I would think, though, that it had something to do with Rachel, don't you think? I mean, J- J- Rachel was the one that J- Jacob loved. When he arrived in Paden Aram, in the home of his uncle Laban, uh, Rachel was one of Laban's daughters, and uh, Joseph- Jacob was attracted to that young lady, wanted to marry her, negotiated with his uncle seven years, and then uh, Rachel will be your bride. And after seven years, his uncle pulls a fast one, and uh, he's married to the wrong girl. But he negotiates. Another seven years. He's not deterred. Another seven years. And, uh, and Rachel has promised. And so I don't think he had to wait the seven years. I think he married Rachel, Leah. And then shortly thereafter he married Rachel. And Leah has one son after another. Rachel has no children. Uh, Jacob has another couple of wives. And they have sons. Ten boys in all. And Rachel has no children. And then at last, Joseph arrives, and I would imagine that uh, their, their joy knew no bounds. This is what they were looking for. This is what Jacob had desired. He wanted a son. In particular, he wanted a son by Rachel. And it says here that he, he loved Joseph more than his other sons. He not only loved him, but he honored him. You notice it says that, uh, that uh, in, verse, in verse 3, at the end of the verse, it says that he made him a tunic of many colors, uh, from what I read, I don't think that necessarily means that he wore a, a, a he wore a garment which had um, various patches or stripes of different colours. I don't think that's the idea. Literally, it means a, a coat of extremities. It's it's a kind of garment that, um, for example, we do read about David's daughters that they wore this garment. This is the kind of this is the word that is used to describe uh, what they were wearing, and so this is a word that is used to describe a garment of distinction. It was a cord of, of extremities. It may have been something that went all the way down to the feet, maybe white with a border, a colored border around the edges. That's what has been suggested. And what it did was it set Joseph apart. It basically, it was a way on Jacob's part of saying, Joseph is different. The others, their shepherds, they would wear short tunics. Here is, uh, here is uh, Joseph, and he has this garment which uh, says that, that he's different. And it may even be, you know, that Jacob was announcing his intention that Joseph should be the firstborn. The firstborn back in these days was important. I'm the firstborn in our family. I have a younger sister and then a brother, but it really didn't mean anything much, you know. In those days, the, the firstborn got a double share, share of the inheritance. Those of you who are the firstborn, don't, you, you don't look for that. You're not going to get it. Um, but that's the way it was back then. They got a double portion. And later on, you know, many years later, when Jacob comes down to Egypt, and uh, and he uh, and he blesses the two sons of Joseph. He says to them, like Reuben and Simeon, they are mine, and he gives them the status of sons. And so, when you look at the twelve tribes of Israel, strictly speaking, there is no tribe of Joseph. There's a tribe of Ephraim and there's a tribe of Manasseh. Joseph was the firstborn. Scripture says the birthright was Joseph's. He effectively became the firstborn. And he got the privileges associated with being the firstborn. And it may be right here that that Jacob is signaling his intention. This is what he desires. If he'd had his way, he would have married Rachel. Joseph would have been the first to be born. And so even from the point of view of time, uh, Joseph would have been the oldest. Joseph would have been the firstborn. That That would have been what he desired. Nevertheless, it didn't happen. But Jacob's intention still is. And it wasn't just an old man's whim, you know. This was something which was ordained by God. It was something decreed by God. And uh, God was in this when Jacob blessed those two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, and effectively raised them to the status of, of, of sons. This was, this was God's doing. And so it may be here that he's signaling that. He loved Joseph. And he honored Joseph in this way. It reminds me of a verse that's found in the Gospel of John about um, the relationships within the Godhead. And it says this in John 3, verse 35 The Father loves the Son, and He's given all things into His hand. It's a description of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The Father loves the Son. That was always true, that was true in eternity. That was true way, way, way back before time began. The Lord Jesus talks about it in John 17. He's praying to his Father and he says, You love me before the foundation of the world. Some time ago I, I, I watched a, a musical video, uh, a Christian, Christian music, and, uh, and the, singing, uh, the singing was good. But in the course of it there was a poem that was recited And uh, the poem, I don't remember the exact words, but the poem went something like this. God was lonely, and so he made the world, made the universe, and God was still lonely, and so he made man. It's utter nonsense. It's utter nonsense. God was never lonely. God was a trinity of persons, and within that trinity there was love and fellowship and joy and delight. God is the only God is the only being in the universe who is altogether and completely self-sufficient. God does not need us. He doesn't need anybody. He is self-sufficient in himself. But within the Godhead, there was this special relationship. The Father loved. He loved the Son. He always did. And certainly it was true when the Lord Jesus came onto this scene. Wasn't that true? I mean, as he he walked among men, and and God the Father witnesses the way in which the Lord Jesus lives, I dare say that uh, there was tremendous joy and delight on his part. Indeed, he opens the heavens, doesn't he, at the baptism of the Lord Jesus, and he says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well placed. The Father loves the Son, and he's given all things into his hand. I talked a little bit a a moment ago about Joseph as the firstborn. You know, that title, firstborn, is a title that is applied to the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. And it has nothing to do with time. The, ter- the, the, the term firstborn is used in Scripture. Usually, the, uh, the first to be born into the family was the firstborn. You know, he got the blessings that went along with that. But there were occasions when, when it didn't happen. And so, someone else in the family effectively became the firstborn. He got those privileges. And so, the, the term firstborn, it doesn't simply connote time. More often than not, it denotes position and status, what went along with being the, firstborn. the Lord Jesus is the firstborn. Colossians chapter 1 says he's the firstborn of all creation. Nothing to do with time. Nothing to do with time. Of course, he was before all creation. But that's not the point. The point is, the New English Bible translates it this way, his is the primacy over all creation. He's the chief, right? He is over it all. Everything was made by him and for him. God has appointed him the heir of all things. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to him. He's the firstborn, he's the chief. Reference was made this morning to, to the Lord Jesus in Romans chapter 8. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Lots of people, lots of people are going to be raised from the dead. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, whether you're a believer or not, actually, we're all going to be raised from the dead, right? We're all going to be raised again. But among those who rise from the dead, there is one who is different. There's one who is first. It's got nothing to do with time. It's not a case of, well, he was the first one to be raised from the dead. He wasn't, actually. Well, Lazarus was raised from the dead, wasn't he? Well, you might say, well, Lazarus died again, so the Lord Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Okay, well, that's true. But that's not what's meant by his being the firstborn from among the dead. He's the firstborn from among the dead in the sense that among all those who rise from the dead, he has no rivals. He is unique. He's supreme. He's first. In in Romans chapter eight, I think this maybe was referred to earlier as well. He's the firstborn among many brethren. We are—he's not ashamed to call us brethren. And if we are believers in the Lord Jesus, you know, he calls us his brethren. Uh, God, God is our father. But there's a world of difference, you see, between God being our father and God being the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the firstborn among many brethren. He's not ashamed to call us brethren, but this is not a brotherhood of equality. This doesn't mean that we are on the same level as the Lord Jesus in terms of our relationship with the Father. Certainly not. He is the one and only. He is He is from eternity the one and only. He is the beloved Son of His Father. And notwithstanding the fact that we too are brought into the family of God, and we were reminded of this, we are children of God. Notwithstanding the fact that that is true, and he is not ashamed to call us brethren, nevertheless, he stands apart. He's different. He's unique. Belongs by himself. The father loves the son. And he's given all things into his hands. That's the first thing about Joseph then. Joseph was loved. Second thing I want you to notice about Joseph is that Joseph was different. It says... Um, it says about him in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, that Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to his father. I don't doubt that he told the truth. I don't think this is a case of making something up and just, you know, trying to get his brothers into trouble. I don't think that's what it is. I don't even think necessarily that, uh, that we should look at this negatively. We might, we might think, well, he was a tattletale. Isn't that what we say in Canada? In Scotland, we would say he was a clipe. That's the word we would use in Scotland. It means somebody who tells tales about another, uh, maybe trying to make them look bad or make himself look good, whatever. And we might look at this and say, well, well, this isn't altogether commendable on Joseph's part that he would tell tales about his brother. But, but I, I'm not inclined to look at it that way. It doesn't fit with the character of Joseph that emerges as we read through his story. Nor does it fit with what Scripture says here. You'll notice it says in verse 2 that uh, Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his brethren. I mean, there, I don't think Joseph would have been, Jacob would have been altogether thrilled, would he? Uh, at Joseph, he had simply been telling tales to get his brothers into trouble. I'm inclined, as I look at this, I'm inclined to read it this way, that Joseph was different. His brothers were up to no good. Whatever it was they were doing, we're not told, but whatever it was they were doing, Joseph would not get involved. Joseph recognized that uh, what they were doing it was wrong. It was something which brought distribute on the family, possibly, and, uh, and possibly distribute on the name of God, and so, and so Joseph would have nothing to do with it. Joseph was offended. Joseph comes to his father not to get his brothers into trouble, but I take it that he came to his father because he was disturbed at the conduct of his brothers. Joseph, Joseph was different. You know, there's a verse in the book of Proverbs, and it tells, us, uh, it tells us this, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who begets a wise child will delight in him. Jacob loved Joseph. Joseph was, Joseph was different. We as uh, who are fathers, we, we, we delight in our children, don't we? We, we delight in, in various things. We, we delight to see them uh, progress in whatever way, right? Uh, in uh, academics, in, in athletics, or, or, or whatever. In fact, we don't even necessarily look to them to excel. We like to, we like to see them make an effort and we take pride and joy in what they are able to do. But I put it to you, that there is nothing that brings more delight to the heart of Christian parents than to see a teenager who is determined not to go with a crowd, but to stand for God and to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back back. Though no one joins me, still I will follow. No turning back. It's a delight to see that. You see, we live in a world, we live in a world in which there is a lot of pressure for us to to conform. And Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says this, he says, don't be conformed to this world. And the one that he uses is a word that has to do with a mold. You you imagine that metal that's being poured, molten metal, is being poured into a mold, and it it derives shape from that mold. That mold determines the shape which the metal will take. And so J.B. Phillips, he translates that verse in Romans 12 this way. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. The world would do that, wouldn't it? We live in a world in which there is tremendous pressure to go along with what is accepted in our society. They would have us they would have us accept its values, they would have us conform to its ways, and it's a challenge to the teenager, it's a challenge to all of us as believers in the Lord Jesus. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. You see, the easy thing for Joseph, the easy thing for Joseph would have been to go along with his brothers, right? I mean, they're, they're his big brothers, and, uh, and so they're, they're up to something or other, and uh, no doubt, well, I assume, they would have invited Joseph. You know, why don't you, why don't you tag along, and uh, why don't you get involved with us? The easy thing, the easy thing for Joseph would have been for him to go along with his brothers and do whatever it was that they were doing. But he danced to a different tune. And Joseph... Joseph was, was different. It's not the way to be popular. It's not the way to be popular. But I put it to you that uh, Jacob, Joseph wasn't, wasn't popular with his brothers. In fact, we'll get to that in a moment. They hated him and they envied him. He wasn't popular with his brothers. But I put it to you that undoubtedly on their part, they would have been grudging respect for that young man. And respect is better than popularity. Joseph, Joseph was different and was prepared to be different. The third thing I want you to notice about him is that Joseph was hated. It says that, um, it says that there at verse 4, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. Could not speak peaceably to him. Uh, we can understand that. This was provocation in a sense, wasn't it, on Jacob's part that he would uh, give this tunic to, to Joseph and, uh, and his brothers. They reacted But there's more to it than that. They, they, they hate him not just because he's got this garment. Uh, Joseph had a dream, verse 5 says. At the end of the verse, they hated him even more. He tells them about his dream. He says, you know, I had this dream, and there were these 12 sheaves in the field. They represent us, the 12 sons of Jacob. And you know what? The other 11 sheaves, they bowed down to my (laughs) sheaf. What do you think? Well, they didn't think much, did they? In fact, it says it. It says it there at uh, at verse verse, uh, verse 8. They respond, shall you indeed reign over us? Shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words you think he'd get the point, you know. But he comes back later and he says, I've had another dream, you know. Uh, Twelve stars, the sun and the moon. Maybe they represent dad and mum. Twelve stars. You know what? The eleven stars, you're eleven stars, and the sun and the moon, they all bow down to me. <laughs> and so it says in verse 11, And his brothers envied him. And his father kept the matter in mind. You see, the, pro- the problem is, you see, that they believed in dreams. They believed uh, at this point in history, they believed in dreams. We know that because you remember when later Joseph is in the prison, the butler and the baker have dreams, they come to Joseph, Joseph interprets those dreams, God given dreams. Later there's Pharaoh, remember? Pharaoh has a couple of dreams. And Joseph comes and he says, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's going to do. And he interprets the dream. And so they they believed in the interpretation of dreams. You'll notice that Jacob, Joseph believed this. His brothers envied him. His father kept the matter in mind. Jacob is wondering what is going on here. And so they believed at that point in time, and it did happen, that God revealed himself sometimes in dreams. Uh, I I want to insert a word of caution here that we ought not to look for God to speak to us in dreams. You know, when you dream tonight, and you're waking up tomorrow morning, there is no point in trying to figure out, well, what was God trying to tell me? That's not the way God speaks to us. God speaks to us through his word. He did not have the word of God, as we have it. We have the word of God. And, uh, and this is the way in which God speaks. Your word is a, light unto, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's how God speaks to us. He speaks to us through the word of God. And so I don't want you to read into this that God can speak to us in dreams. He, he does... Of course, he's a, he's, a, he's a sovereign God, and he can do that if he chooses, but that's not what we look for. And if you have a dream, I wouldn't waste time trying to figure out what is God trying to tell me. That's not the point. But here God was speaking. The problem, you see, the problem, as far as these brothers are concerned, the, the problem was essentially twofold. It says uh, it says it uh, back at verse 4, uh, verse 4, that, and, uh, that they hated verse eight, rather the end of verse 8, They hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. The problem is twofold. On the one hand, on the one hand, I suggest Joseph was a, was a rebuke to them. Joseph challenged them. His words. He came and spoke to his father. Brought a evil report. By what he did, by what he was, by what he said, Joseph challenged them and he exposed their sin. And they didn't like that. They not like that. And then they hated him for his dreams. On the one hand, you see, he talks about them, if you will. He exposes their sin and their guilt. On the other hand, he talks about himself, and he suggests that it looks like one day, the day's coming when I'm going to be exalted, and you fellows, you're going to bow to me. And so there were two issues here, right? One, he talks about them and their sin. They don't like that. He exposes their guilt. On the other hand, he talks about himself and his exaltation. Well, they don't like that either and they hated him, and they envied him. It's exactly the same thing with the Lord Jesus, isn't it? The Lord Jesus said when he was here, they hated me without a cause. Why did they hate him? The Lord Jesus was the very personification of love and kindness and goodness and compassion. Why did they hate him? They hated him, first of all, because he exposed their sin. He says on one occasion, you know, if I had not come, they would not have known sin. But I have come, and now they have no excuse. He exposed their sin, didn't he? On one occasion, he challenges them, and he says, you know, the truth can make you free. And they say, well, just a minute, what do you mean make free? We are Abraham's children. We were never in bondage to any man or to anything. I mean, it's really, uh, it really boggles the mind that they would speak in those terms because even as they spoke, they were under the Romans, weren't they? And yet they say, we were never in bondage. And the Lord Jesus said, he who commits sin is the servant of sin. Well, We are, of, we are the descendants of Abraham. Abraham is our father. You're of your father, the devil. <laughs> he challenged them, didn't he? It's impossible... It is impossible for anyone to have any kind of contact with, any kind of knowledge of the Lord Jesus. It's impossible for them to do so without their being aware of their own sin. The Lord Jesus does that. He exposes our guilt. He reminds us of our sin. And the other thing, of course, when the Lord Jesus was here, he talked about himself, didn't he? He made some amazing claims. On one occasion, when he's speaking to them, he says, you know, before Abraham was, I was. No, he doesn't say that. He could have said that, couldn't he? Before Abraham was, I was. Pre-existence. Existed before Abraham. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He not only claims pre-existence, he claims to be the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He claims to be God. And it tells us, that's in John chapter 8, it tells us that they picked up stones to kill him. You see, the the, the claims of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus was such that he reminded them of their guilt and their hypocrisy. He exposed their sinfulness. On the other hand, he made these startling claims about himself. And uh, their only option really was either to bow down to him and acknowledge who he was or to reject him. And there was no way they were going to bow to him. And so they hated him. And they envied him. And the Lord Jesus says, they hated me, they're going to hate you. He says it this way in John chapter 17. He's praying to his father, and he says, Father, I have given, talking about us, talking about the the 11 disciples in the first instance, but talking about us, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Those two statements are, they're not independent of each other. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. The word and the world are on a collision course. This, is, this world in which we live, they, they do not want the word of God. In fact, the society in which we live is a society which prides itself more than anything in political correctness. Political correctness is more important than truth. Right? As far as our society is concerned. and What is most important is that we be politically correct. Truth is secondary in fact. In fact, there is no such thing as truth in an absolute sense. Our society promotes pluralism. And so there are lots of religions and lots of ideas. And so this little community over here, or a large community for that matter, they have their version of the truth. Well, that's fine for them. And there's another group, and they have their version of the truth. Well, that's fine for them. And there's some Christians over here, and they have their version of the truth. And if they just keep it to themselves, then that's okay. But, but there is no overriding truth. It's all relative. It's truth for this one, truth for that one, and truth for the next thing. And Christianity conflicts with that. And the message of the word of God is a message which is not palatable to the world. Because it says that this is truth. The truth is something which is based upon the revelation that God has given in his word and in his son. Notwithstanding the fact that our society would argue differently and would favor a different kind of way of looking at things, Christianity insists that there is such a thing as absolute truth, bound up in the word of God and in the person of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christianity insists Christianity insists that we are sinful. It insists that we are exposed to the wrath of God. It insists that the only hope we have is in a crucified man, one who was crucified at Calvary and who rose again from the dead. That's not a palatable message. That's not a message that people want to hear. That message leaves no room for human pride. That message says that I'm a sinner and i cannot do anything to save myself my only hope is in the crucified is in the crucified jesus christ that's not a palatable message but that's the message which we preach and the world has hated them we can expect we can expect that kind of opposition from the world But when all is said and done, what is important is not what is politically correct and not what is palatable to those that we're speaking to. What is important is what is true. Martin Luther, he was uh, told to recant. And uh, as he stood there uh, before the court, uh, he said, uh, Here I stand, I can do no other. And he insisted that he would stand for truth. And so Joseph was was hated, and he was envied. And then, fourthly, Joseph was obedient. One day, his father comes to him, and he says... Uh, Your brothers, uh, they're looking after the flock in Shechem. Verse 13, they're not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem. Come, I will send you to them. And so he said, here I am. am." His his response was was immediate, right? It was spontaneous. There was no humming and hawing. There was no excusing himself and saying, well, I got other things to do. His father says, I want you to go to see how your brothers are at Shechem. Here I am. An immediate, spontaneous response. And it was a total response. He's told, they're at Shechem, go and see how they're making out. So he gets to Shechem, they're not there. They're not there. And strictly speaking, you know, I think when, when Joseph got to Shechem, you know, he could have said, oh, oops, my dad sent me to Shechem to see how my brothers are, they're not here. Well, I guess I'll go back and tell my dad, sorry, that I did what you told me to do. I went to Shechem, they're not there. Don't know where they are. He could have done that, couldn't he? That would have been, that would have been obedience to the letter of the commandment. We can do that kind of thing, can't we? I mean, we've all done this kind of thing, I suspect. Where We're to do something well, we just do the bare minimum, right? Enough to get by, right? We're not going to put ourselves out and, do, and go the extra mile. And so we, we, we say, well, that's what I'm asked to do. Well, well that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to do that. We can do that kind of thing. But Joseph wasn't like that. Joseph says, they're not here. Hmm. I know what my father wants. I know he told me that at Shechem, go and see how they're making out. But I know what my father wants. He's not interested in whether that are at Shechem or not. He's interested in how they are. And so he inquires. Oh, they've moved on to Dothan. So he goes to Dothan. This was this was no uh, this was no afternoon uh, uh, yeah, sort of uh, hike. You know, this was I think Shechem was 20 miles, and he's only 17 years of age. You know, so this is this is no small journey. And then he has to go on further to Dothan. He knows what his, father's want, his father wants. His response, you see, was his obedience was, was spontaneous. It was immediate, but it was also total. It wasn't a partial thing. It was this total submission to what he knew his father wanted him to do. The Lord is looking for obedience on our part. May I say to you that if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus... What God looks for from you first and foremost is that you obey the gospel, that you repent, and you believe in the Lord Jesus. That's a command, you know. We might think, well, okay, the gospel is an invitation. Whosoever will may come, and that, that is an invitation. But you cannot ignore that invitation with impunity. God commands all men everywhere to repent. So, what God looks for, if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus, then what God is looking for in the first instance from you is that you acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you acknowledge your need, that you acknowledge that you cannot save yourself, that you acknowledge that you deserve the judgment of God, and you look to Calvary and you recognize that the Lord Jesus was there in my place. He paid for my sin, He bore my sin in His own body on the tree, and I trust in the Lord Jesus. That's what He's looking for. He's looking for obedience to the gospel. The obedience of faith. That's how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1. And not only, not only is it initial, an initial act of obedience, but in fact, what he is looking for is that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we demonstrate that there is a real desire on our part to obey, to obey him. In fact, that's a characteristic of a Christian, isn't it? The Lord Jesus in John chapter 10 he talks about uh, himself as a good shepherd and he says about us, we are his sheep, uh, those who are his sheep, and he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's a characteristic of his sheep. If I'm really one of his sheep, then my desire will be to know and to do the will of God. If that's not so, then there's a problem somewhere characteristic of a believer is that that individual desires to obey what God instructs him or her to do. Joseph's response was total. And then you'll notice too that his, his response or his obedience was, uh, it was costly. Uh, he didn't know it at the time, but it was costly. His brothers, they see him coming and they say, well, here comes this dreamer, let's, let's kill him. And then Reuben, I think it was, Reuben, Reuben says, no, 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 let's not, let's not kill him. Let's put him in this pit. Reuben, had the, Re, Reuben is the oldest. And Reuben figures, we'll put him in this pit. And later on, when the others aren't looking, I'll come around and I'll let him. And I'll let it go. But it didn't quite work out that way because uh, down come some uh, Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. And Jura, Jura speaks up. Reuben, Reuben's nowhere to be found, I take it, at this point in time. Judah speaks up and he says, why don't, we, why don't we, we don't want to kill him, do we? Why don't we sell him to these Ishmaelites and be rid of him that way? And so they negotiate with these Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver and Joseph is sent off into slavery in the land of Egypt. His obedience was costly. It cost him home. It cost him the friendship and the love of his father. It cost him the comfort that he was used to. At home, it meant slavery and exile. In a foreign land where they were different culture, different language, not only so, he ends up as a slave in the house of of a man called Potiphar. His obedience was costly. Reminds me of the Lord Jesus again. There's a verse in Hebrews 5 that says about the Lord Jesus that though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered doesn't mean that he learned to obey you know you and I learn to obey sometimes we have to be taught you know sometimes we learn the hard way sometimes discipline has to be applied and we and we and we eventually get the message Uh, our obedience is not always uh, immediate we have to sometimes learn to obey the Lord Jesus didn't learn to obey the Lord Jesus when he came into this scene he says I delight we were reminded of this morning I delight to do your will O God there never was any deviation from that. He was totally submissive, totally obedient. But he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. In other words, he learned what obedience involved. Experientially, came into this scene and he discovered that obedience meant, it meant loneliness. It meant rejection. It meant poverty. Ultimately, it meant crucifixion. It meant that he was one who was rejected, despised, and rejected by men. The Lord Jesus, he discovered by experience in this scene what obedience was all about. His obedience was something that was costly. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's the kind of obedience that God is looking for in our lives. The Lord Jesus talked about it, didn't they? And the Lord Jesus on one occasion, he said it uh, this way, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's not talking about how I become a Christian. I mean, I have already pointed out, I become a Christian when I repent of my sin and when I trust in the Lord Jesus. Repentance and faith, that's how I become a Christian. So the Lord's not talking about how I become a Christian, but what he is talking about is this, is if we're going to become Christians, we should understand what we're signing up for could be costly. Whoever, he says, does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I'm not sure whether it's a really positive thing or not, but the truth of the matter is that it's a relatively easy thing in Canada to profess to be a Christian and to be part of a local church. It's a relatively easy thing to do that. There are other parts of the world where you declare that you're a Christian and it could cost, well, maybe your job, maybe your family, maybe even your life. We're not in that kind of society. But the Lord Jesus is saying we should be ready for that. Unless we're willing to take our cross, unless we're willing to say no to self, to renunciate our desires, and to cling to him and to him only, and to consider everything else secondary, unless we're willing to do that, and unless we're willing to accept the cost that that might bring, then we're not worthy to be his disciple. It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge to all of us. And so there is Joseph then, as a teenager. I said he was special. He was. He was loved, he was different. He was hated, and he was obedient. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, story that we've been looking at. Thank you that you have seen fit to record this for us. Whatever things were written before time, they were written for our learning. And so we pray that you would help us to, to understand the message that is being communicated here. Help us to meditate on these things and to, and to learn the lessons that are here for us. We thank you for the opportunity to meet in this way. And we pray that we might be responsive to what it is that you are saying through your word. We ask and give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.